Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and this week kicks off a flurry of shows recorded during Funkfest in Nashville, Tennessee. First up, it's Vinny Chulerzo. He's the co-founder, co-owner, and brewer of Russian River Brewing Company in California. We'll be talking about the relationship between beer and wine, and then getting into a lively conversation about hops. But first, please go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can find original articles, reviews, news, insights, and podcasts. You can listen to shows like Beer Travelers, Brewer to Brewer, and the All About Beer podcast simply by searching All About Beer wherever you listen to shows. This show and all of the work we do is supported by you. You can please visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer where you can donate to help keep the content fresh. A few bucks really does go a long way to fund writers, photographers, creators, and editors. And if you'd like to learn more about advertising through All About Beer, please email info at allaboutbeer.com. I am writing this introduction about a week following Funkfest, the annual event held by Embrace the Funk and Yazoo Brewing, and I'm still feeling the warmth of the day, not temperature-wise, mind you, but rather the good feeling that sprang forth from this low-key event filled with world-class beers. Brandon Jones and Linus Hall, two brewers that I've known for years, have put real thought into creating a tasting event that focuses on spontaneous fermentation, but makes way for other delightful beers. With copious amounts of food, a great soundtrack, and alternative drinks like coffee and kombucha, this brings together brewers who are passionate about the beers they make, tradition, and ingredients. It's easy, fun, and informative. Jones asked me to host a series of panels during the fest, casual conversations with leading brewers on a variety of topics, and it was my great pleasure to do so. And so first up is Vinny Cholerzo of Russian River, who brought along two beers for the assembled audience to taste. While listening to people taste beer isn't always a lot of fun, especially after the fact, I imagine you, dear listener, will get a lot out of his stories behind these beers and a deeper understanding of the brewing science behind each one. Recorded at Funkfest 2023 before an enthusiastic crowd, here's our conversation. Sort of kick this off, um, tell us what is being poured right now and what you want people to know about this particular beer. As the crowd is now, uh, the word is out that Vinny's pouring from his stash, and yeah, the, the word is coming out. All right, so uh, what, you're, what we're pouring right now is a beer called Pumice Beer. Um, I, I, I will probably have some after we can pour, but uh, you guys are here, so thanks for uh, coming out and listening. Uh, Pumice Beer is, the base beer is our spontaneous fermented beer. Um, that we call Synambic. Synambic, because uh, Lambic is a protected uh, phrase, if you will, in Belgium, style of beer. So Synambic is the word Sonoma, where we're located, and Lambic contracted together. So base, base beer is Synambic, so it uh, could be uh, any number of vintages blended together. And then we're using what's called pumice. Pumice is the leftover grapes from a winery after they've uh, pressed them. And that could be white or red pumice. In this case, uh, it's Petit Syrah pumice from a local uh, longtime multi-generation uh, grape growing family in uh, the Russian River Valley uh, called Bajigalupe. They also have a wine brand as well. Uh, so this clocks in at 10.2% alcohol. <laughs> okay. It, it is it is purposefully still. There's no carbonation to it. Um, when and and we're 
brewing with pumice isn't necessarily, we weren't the first ones to do it. Um, I believe uh, Garrett Oliver is pouring uh, something with pumice today at the Brooklyn uh, Brewery booth. Uh, Firestone Walker has played with pumice before. Uh, this is the third time we've done it. Uh, first time we did it was in 2020. We did carbonate it. And when I first thing that I thought when I tasted it was, this thing needs to be still. It needs to have no carbonation. And the whole idea was to really blur the lines between beer and wine. And we're in the middle of wine country. Um, Natalie and I at Russian River, we've got six or 700 wineries within 50 or 60 miles of our brewery. Uh, we're a stone's throw from the Sonoma Valley, Dry Creek, uh, Russian River, where they grow the best Pinot Noir in, in America. Uh, Carneros isn't far, and then we have Napa Valley uh, over the hill. Um, we have a saying about Napa. Uh, Napa is for auto parts. Sonoma is for wine and beer. So, <laughs> um, our, our friend Ron Caps, who races NHRA for Napa, we tell him like every year, if you ever win in Sonoma, you need to say that on national television. So anyway, so that, that really the idea was to add um, a whole lot of pumice, about five or six pounds of pumice per gallon of beer uh, to, to a base beer that was already put through barrels, soured, funked up, and then eventually uh, removed that beer. It gets a beautiful color from the pumice. It's really amazing how much is left in those grapes even after the winery presses them. Um, I grew up in a winery, so I know a lot about grapes and winemaking, but what really surprised me was that depending on what winery we get the pumice from, because uh, we, we also do a Cabernet Sauvignon version of it, we've done Pinot Noir. Um, what's unique is that it depends how much they pressed the pumice and what we get out of it. Because if they press it more, there's going to be less liquid in the uh, in the fruit. Yeah. And so then, you actually end up a lot of that beer ends up staying in the in the pumice. So it takes more for a grape that's been pressed more. Can you talk to me a little bit about the the blending of beer and wine and and working within a new style or finding ways to have the two talk to each other in a way that is impactful like this is in the glass. Like they, yeah. I, I know you approach your, your beers in, in analytical ways and creative ways. Um, when you're playing with two different beverages, yeah. uh, how does, uh, where does that conversation start and then how does it evolve? Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the coolest things about this beer is that, and, and all fruit beers for that matter, so we'll, we'll consider this a, a fruit beer, a grape, fruit beer um, is you have to think about the acidity of what the fruit is going to contribute and then if you're using grapes you need to think about the tannins that the grapes are going to contribute as well so the tannins are that um, drying puckering quality that you get from a, like a big red wine um, and you know we have to think this through because when I'm gonna do this, the winery has already put this through a fermentation. Uh, they're getting a lot of skin contact, particularly for a Petite Syrah, which is about as big of a, a, a wine as you can have. And, and there was a lot of thought put towards the variety that yeah. we chose as well. We've, we've made pumice beers with something as light as Pinot Noir, which was way too light. It, it didn't have near the complexity in fact, we never released it. A beer just got blended away into some other fruited beer. Um, it wasn't bad in, in the sense that it 
wasn't good to drink, but it just didn't have the personality. So we're really kind of down to Cabernet and Pinot Noir. So I think one of the first things is acidity. And then second to that is the tannins for this beer and then trying to figure it out. But it, at some point, you just have to go for it and do it and try it uh, because there's so few breweries out there making beers using pumice um, that like the first year, I was like, okay, this is good, but next year I'm gonna add 30 or 40% more pumice because this one just didn't quite hit the level. Yeah, so I've, I've had other pumice beers before and um, they a lot of times they left a little like a desire for more contribution from the grapes and um and that was that was the idea of of where we took it to get to six pounds of pumice per gallon of beer and and the pumice is free by the way so we're taking a waste from a winery my our friend elias from silver oak winery because we do a, a cabernet pumice beer with them he goes to me so we have these these picking bins that hold about a thousand pounds of pumice and he's like, you only want two of them? He goes, I've got shit tons of these things. Like, <laughs> take more, take more. So they just take it and dump it in the vineyard and it composts in the vineyard. Um, a beer's personality, I like that. Of, And that's sort of one of those things where when you're doing it trial and error, uh, when you're doing it year after year, it's going to speak to you in a way that, that, that you want to. And there are so few breweries that are doing pumice beers um after you wait, so after this was bottled and after you've been tasting this um what did you learn from this batch that you might apply to the future to to, to help that personality yeah. grow a little bit more um yeah you know we've we've hit a point on this one there's the petite Syrah pumice from where the grapes or the pumice came from Bajagalupe that i really like where it's at um, so I think moving forward, it's to make sure that we don't pick a base beer that's too acidic, that has too high of a sour uh, acidity content. Yeah. Um, because I really like where it's at. Um, if it was a little bit higher, it wouldn't be the end of the world. If it was a little bit lower, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But I'm really happy where this is at. But I made that comment before about... So some I, I, by the way, I wasn't like, suggesting no, no, yeah, that, yeah. like, oh, this yeah, is garbage, yeah, do better yeah. next year. It yeah. wasn't like one of those Because I, yeah. I think a better example, <laughs> although we don't have it here, is the Cabernet Sauvignon version that it, we haven't released it yet at the brewery, but it's super light. And that's, that was my comment earlier, that some wineries press harder and they get more out of their grapes. Okay. And Silver Oak Cabernet producer does that. And so the, we just didn't get as much as I thought we would get from it. Yeah. So next year, I am going to take more pumice from Elias, the cellar master at Silver Oak, and probably double up what we did now. Um, we'll have lower yields, but this isn't a beer that we make a lot of. It's a super labor-intensive beer. Um, we... We have these 550-gallon cube tanks that we hand load. We scoop out of the bins and hand dump the pumice in, purge it with CO2, fill it with beer. And then at some point when we drain the beer out, we need to remove all that fruit as well. So super labor intensive. But again, the whole vision of like and goal of blurring the lines of what wine and beer could be. And, you know, it's not going to 
I, I think you could put this in front of someone and they would think it was wine. Yeah, they're not going to think it's a Petite Syrah or a Cabernet. Sure. But it's every bit as full-bodied and tannic as a Gamay Beaujolais, you know, or a, a French, lower alcohol French wine. Um, what is the most labor-intensive beer you make? Uh, on the funky wild side, anything that gets fresh fruit like this is, is definitely labor-intensive. Um, probably that peach beer that we're pouring inside, if you haven't had it yet, um, because we, we get those peaches in, uh, we hand-cut them, uh, so we have them, uh, then we pit them by hand, and then you know they go into a bucket, and they have to get weighed, they get hand dumped into these cube tanks and then it sits and then by the end we've got to you know rake all the peaches out into a tippy dump and then they go out to our compost bin so that, that's probably it and then on the non-funky side it's probably plenty of the younger there's just a crap ton of hops tons of dry hopping yields suck um but the result is is magical. Um, I want to talk about hops in a, in, in a minute and yeah. uh, uh, and your IPAs because um, I know that's what you yeah. talk about uh, a, a lot. Um, I'm always struck when I'm drinking your beers from the wild side of, of, of the brewery um, that the acidity is always... I'm not it, it, perfect isn't the right word, but it, it's appropriate, and it, it it it's not stripping the enamel off my teeth. I'm not hunting for it. You found. I don't even know if balance is the right word either, and I'm, I'm struggling uh, to, to, to find the right words to say this, but acidity is one of those things where I feel like in the last 10 or so years, as more people have added on wild programs, they almost did what craft did in the early days, whereas we've had beer for 50 years that have had zero flavor. We are going to do all of the flavor. We are going to do all of the hops, and we went through the IBU wars and everything, and... I feel like there are breweries that are approaching uh, acidity in their beers that same way, where it's just dialed way off the charts. Yeah. Um, what do you? What would you like to see as far as you know, acid in beers, uh, you know, acid content in beers um, uh, across the board, or that, or, or for brewers to pay more attention to, um, or you know, for drinkers to be yeah. thinking about. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I like a softer acidity. Um, I love when you talk to a, uh, a Lambic brewer they, in Belgium. They kind of get mad at you if, if you tell them, like, sour beer. Like, they don't want to hear you say sour because a well-made Lambic goose is very soft on the palate. And, um, and so we kind of strive for that. We certainly had our, our years where our acidity had crept up. And I, I think one of the things I, two things, three things I attributed to. One, we dump a barrel if there's ever any acetic acid. Acetic acid would be the balsamic vinegar quality. Even if there's a, a hint of it, we dump the barrel and we get rid of it. Um, we're in a little bit better position than most uh, <laughs> brewers making wild yeah. beer because... We have so many wine nice wineries have, yeah. and winemaker friends, and um, you know, if, if we were in the middle of America, it'd be a lot harder to get barrels. Um, I can literally drive our forklift to four different wineries that are on our block. So, um, and some of them we do get barrels from. So, so that's one thing. Uh, two, um, over the years, and you know, a lot of times breweries get 
knocked for growing. But one of the things that happens when you grow is you tend to get better equipment. And like our barrel room now is a solid 58 degrees always. It's never a different temperature. I know there are some, uh, even some Lambic brewers that like that rise and fall because there's talk about the wood contracting and kind of yeah. the going back and forth. And I personally don't prescribe to that. I want a solid 58 year round in our barrel room and it's always that temperature and I think that really controls the acidity. But I think another unique thing for us is that our bacteria culture, so we always buy Brett. We're often buying Brett from different uh, suppliers, but our bacteria, we've never bought a culture of Brett since I think 2008. So we'll take the dregs of our Synambic, our spontaneous barrels, and then we'll grow that up. And our, our natural native yeast that sours that beer naturally um, is very soft and subtle. So that has now become our house culture for everything, temptation, supplication, consecration, the, the uh, peach beer. Um, that when are you making procrastination? I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> so anyways, those, those three things really drive, I think, a soft acidity. But I think temperature has a lot, a lot to do with it. Um, we, we interestingly uh, pitch our Britannomyces based on cell count. Um, but we pitch bacteria based on taste so and how old the barrel is. We clean our barrels with 160 Fahrenheit water at about 1,000 PSI through a pressure washer. And so uh, we're definitely not getting all the bacteria out of the barrel. So the longer we use a barrel, the less bacteria we'll pitch to it. And to know how much we're going to pitch, we'll, it's basically a mathematical equation in the head that's not too scientific. And then we're just going to taste our sour stock, our bacteria stock. And if it's less acidic, we'll add a little bit more. If it's more acidic, we'll vice versa. Yeah. So. And that's that personality as well yeah. of, yeah, yeah, of trying to. And, I, and I think that's why I'm the only one that mostly only one that touches these beers. I mean, I make all those decisions myself. It's still my favorite thing to do in the brewery is, is it is make yeah do all the wild funky beers it, it absolutely is um i think it, things are starting to shake out and i wasn't trying to be too disparaging to to the brewers that are putting out you know just you know straight acid um uh or you know acid reflux to to everybody who goes near it um but where do you see or where would you like to see um this category this style um go overall with beer yeah. these days yeah i was i was hoping this would come up okay. i know we agreed last night you weren't going to tell me any of the questions so and i was hoping you'd bring this up because there was a time when and it wasn't that long ago when there was a lot more breweries that were getting into wild funky sour production and and you know when you come to an event like this these are some of the breweries that are left after a lot of breweries came and went and, and i'm not talking about quick sour beers and nothing wrong with those th those the beers. kettle sours that kind of yeah, thing, yeah. You know, nothing wrong with those beers but i'm talking about true classic you know funky wild barrel beers and it's and it's a lot of breweries have come and gone and there was a lot of breweries making too tart too acidic too acetic too much balsamic vinegar and and it's nice that it's kind of contracted back to um, those that really are doing it because let's face it I mean 
talk to almost anyone here today that's a brewer these aren't these beers aren't just flying off the shelves these are this is a really tough category right now and um and we we see it at, at russian river um in fact I mean, we're, we're fully committed to this style, um, temptation, supplication, consecration. We still sell a, a lot of our three base wild funky beers, but we've, we're repurposing a part of our funky brewery right now and converting it into lager, what we're calling lager house. And we're, um, it's like six or 7,000 square feet. Honestly, though, what it is, is it's more of a correction that I overbuilt the funky brewery in the first place and should have just taken the barrel room that we are that is our funky brewery now yeah that should have been the only square footage so we're just kind of making a course correction and we're installing 250 barrel lagering tanks to make more velvet glow and sts and and going deeper into the lager but it also is just helping us refocus on our funky production and um and so you know i i hope that breweries recognize the softness of acidity and also those that are doing it that they they don't walk away from it if they're committed to it because um, there is a market out there it's just a smaller market of folks that want to drink these beers and are willing to pay a little bit more for a beer that's taken one two three years to make yeah you know and it's no different than wine pricing at all so do the three categories if, you, if, if focusing on a lager uh program now uh or expanding it uh, being known for your IPAs and your, your hop forward beers and then also having your wild funky side as well. Um, is there a Venn diagram that exists for consumers <laughs> of all three or are, are they, are they kind of siloed? Are they, you know, do people who all like go for STS, like they've never, you know, they'll never yeah. drink one of, one of your wild and sour. Like, how does, cause yeah. it, it's three very different things. Yeah. Yeah. They are, they are totally different. Um, I honestly don't know the answer to that okay. question. Um, I I do know that you know our most of our lager production is a pretty hoppy pilsner, dry hopped a little bit. It's kind of an Italian pils, if you will. Um, so it's not your everyday super mild. So I think we have people jumping around drinking all these styles. I think what's unique for us is that we're in the middle of wine country. We sell most of our beer in the Bay Area. And so because of that, we have a lot of wine drinkers. And so these, these beers speak to a wine drinker. And it's a great crossover for anyone here, any brewery here that's working with a restaurant as well that might be selling these beers to a restaurant because they can, they can, you know, that restaurant can sell this as a wine alternative or just a, a cool crossover between the the two products and um natalie and i were at the california craft beer summit a few weeks ago and speaking there and just hanging out and bart watson from the brewers association made this comment about that like you know people are i've always said this that craft beer drinkers are actually very promiscuous they they'll drink wine they'll drink cocktails whatever else kombucha cider and and so you can't as a brewer think that a consumer is only going to drink beer or only going to drink wild funky beer and so as a business owner natalie and i have these three silos if you will ipa um you know funky wild beer and then pilsner and then technically you could say a fourth because we've always made belgian beer since at least since 1999 you know there's another style that's 
sells even worse these days than funky wild beer. Um, but we keep making it because we love it. Yeah. And and we're very fortunate. We have this beer, Pliny the Elder, that pays the electric bill, and um, it's it's a big part of our of our volume, and so it allows us to play in all these other arenas. Um. Admittedly, I have a charmed life. I, 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 I've been covering beer for 20 years. Um, I get to, to have conversations like this and um, uh, share them with folks. And uh, occasionally I get emails. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly jaded guy, but um, uh, as, as most reporters and journalists are. But um, uh, three days ago, I get an email from Vinny as we start to talk about this. And he said, my original thought that this is a funky fest, so we should discuss something funky related. But... Another option would be for me to overnight a few cases of Pliny the Elder, uh, and we could pour four-day-old Pliny the Elder, which is now being pulled out that was overnighted uh, and bottled four days ago. Uh, and then we could discuss the modern history of IPA in America, what it was like in the early years, hop selection, difficult to sell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I get this email when I wake up. It's about 5 o'clock in the morning, and I am texting Jones. I live on the East Coast, so 4 o'clock in the morning for him being like, do you see this email? Vinny wants to overnight some Pliny. I think that's all right for Funk Fest, right? And um, I don't know. It's called Funk Fest. <laughs> I didn't know there was like. I mean, for God, okay, Funky. There's an Orval booth here too. If you didn't see that, like, oh, <laughs> yeah, it's four day old. It was bottled on Tuesday. Yeah, bottled oh. on the second of May. Yeah. Um, how important is freshness with IPA? Yeah, it's the most important thing. There's nothing more important in IPA than freshness. Uh, there's all kinds of internal things at a brewery. Uh, TPO, total package oxygen. Uh, that's nothing that a consumer would ever know about or hear or see or whatever. That helps drive freshness. Um, but you as a consumer should never buy an IPA that's not kept cold at the store period i don't care what brewery it is Full stop yeah it should always be kept cold um we have written into all of our distributor contracts that they must keep it cold most of our trucks ship cold um you know maybe there's a distributor and my an hour away that doesn't because it's that close but um you know when we ship the beer out here for you know, it's CBC Craft Brewers conferences happening this week. It got shipped cold. Um, you know, that's it's it's the backbone of anything IPA. Period. What do you see as the state of IPA in America right now? I mean, you've you've been doing this long enough. You've created trends. You've led conversations. Where where do you think we are? I I uh, you know Natalie and I are as I've we're as I said before we're in the middle of wine country. So we think of a lot of things that are wine-related. Um, I think of IPA as the Chardonnay of beer now. It's so ubiquitous. Like, yes, there are a lot of wineries that don't make Chardonnay, but it's still the number one wine grown, produced, poured, bought in America. And IPA is that way for craft beer. And, and you have different iterations of Chardonnay. You have Chardonnay that's got malolactic fermentation and some that don't, some that are heavily oaked and some that aren't. And you have French styles that, you know, that are more like Chablis that 
are unoaked and un, non-malactic is what I like. Um, and that's the same thing with IPA now. I feel like you've got <laughs> all these different iterations of it, but I don't think I don't think IPA is going anywhere. And that's nothing's going to knock it off anytime soon. That's that's for sure. The consumers have really taken to it. And I remember when I made the first double IPA and then I was making right blind pig IPA initially back in 94 at my first brewery uh, in, in the mid 90s, you couldn't give IPA away. And if you would have told me then that IPA was gonna be what it is now, that it's like 35 or 40% of all craft beer, I would have told you you were freaking nuts. Um, because it was just, you. I mean, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was a hard enough sell first Sierra Nevada at the right, time. Right, 1980, yeah. And, you know, we were the next level up, and that's why we didn't make a pale ale, was because of Sierra. And they did sell a lot in Southern California already. Um, so, yeah, it's crazy to see how consumers have shifted their palate to as much hops as as we now put in and it's gotten even more uh i just brewed on our pilot brewery a couple days ago i rebrewed inaugural ale which is our the very the first iteration of double ipa that i made in 1994 and um it's funny because it's such a mild hop load yeah i walk us through what was bold back in yeah 94 yeah so uh, one and a half pounds uh, per barrel was the dry hop load. Whoa! whoa. Yeah, that's yeah, like innovative. Yeah, that's like that. You know, what you're trying to do tickle me. Yeah, you know? a little Cheech and Chong <laughs> moment. So, I think that's Cheech and Chong. Yeah. Um, was that up in smoke or no? <laughs> so, um, hey, I'm from Sonoma County, right? A lot of a lot of cannabis is growing there. Um, it was way more front-loaded with hops, um, like three times as much hops for the bitterness. Okay. And um, But the one unique thing for us was, yes, there was a little crystal malt in it, but it was just a small amount. A lot of breweries that came after us making West Coast IPA used a lot more crystal malt, and they prescribed to the idea that it was like a, a hoppy barley wine, which I never did. Um, so the inaugural ale had a little C15 in it, maybe like 3 or 4%, and then our regular IPA had like 3% C40. Okay. Um, but definitely West Coast style. There was no hazy IPA back then. Uh, you know, do multiple you make a hazy? Yeah, we do. It's called Mind Circus, and uh, it's not a huge, it's less than 1% of our production. Um, I'd call it a West Coast hazy. It's quite bitter and hoppy, and my personal opinion, um, my brewer friends can take this however they want, but I think most hazy IPAs are too sweet, and they have too much calcium chloride added to it, which adds mouthfeel and body, and to me, they're, they're hard. What I love about West Coast IPA or a good pale ale or a good pilsner, or a good lager, whatever, is that drinkability that... Yeah. And the bitterness is what brings you back wanting more. And I've I've heard far too often in the recent years that, you know, that, oh, I, I don't like bitterness that much. And I, I personally think for a while now there's been kind of an assault on bitterness, you know, from brewers. Yeah. And, and they're not... They're not... For me, I rationalize bitterness is that it's part of mouthfeel and drinkability and it just it, it leaves you wanting more it's a great pilsner a great hellas has a really crisp bitterness last year we had our german hop uh uh supplier ign visiting us after the firestone walker festival and we were drinking our hellas and there and 
And they were like, this needs to be like three or four or five BUs more. And, and Garrison, our head brewer, and I were like, really? And, and, and we've little by little and taken it up. And it's like, man, they're right. It's so much more drinkable now. So we're like taking our own advice. When you talk, though, about the growth of IPA, and I think it's important to note that, like, there are, you know, clear beers that have pronounced bitterness, the West Coast style, that yeah. are still uh, doing really well and enjoyable to drink. But Hazy is running the show these days and, and steering the conversation. And that lack of bitterness, the focus on the juicy, the focus on the guava puree yeah. that goes into it. Um, have you ever thought about putting guava puree in this, by the way? <laughs> 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 Jones and I had a bet if I was going to ask that question or not but uh, yeah that's uh, for those of you listening Vinny has just gotten up he's walked away yeah, he's yeah, mad um, it's all good it's all good <laughs> I can take it do you get it. a lot of suggestions from people who are dumb like me saying like you know have you ever thought about messing with you the- should make a hazy Pliny yeah oh yeah we get it all the time you- <laughs> yeah what would that look like or what would that taste like? I will. In your mind? I will admit that I once pulled uh, John Kimchik from uh, um, from from Alchemist, Teddy Topper maker in Vermont. Yeah. Once was out visiting. He goes, man, I would love a keg of hazy Pliny. So I kegged five gallons and force carbonated it and overnighted it to him. So he's the only one that's ever had it. Wow. So, that's uh, it was it was fun because John was there talking about this is like probably eight years ago when it was before the hazy movement had really exploded. And so you kinda had Pliny and Hetty on this this pedestal of West Coast and Hazy. And Natalie was the only one there. And we just had this amazing conversation and we were drinking beers from the tank and just comparing our process of hazy and uh and and a west coast clean clear and it was amazing how different the uh the process is and and how we dry hop temperature and that that sort of thing so on the on the topic of bitterness though i i you hear you know you can't appreciate the sweet without the bitter like when you're talking about life and i think that's true with food and uh it's important but there are scores of beer drinkers these days not even craft beer drinkers but beer drinkers these days who have flocked to the hazy style because they like that fruitiness to it they like some of these new world hops that tropical uh ness to it and then when you put a beer like this in front of those you know, serious modern IPA drinkers, there's that recoil thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was probably also happening when Sierra Nevada was putting out a 32 IBU pale you know, ale, pale ale yeah. um, uh, 40 years ago. Uh, so you must think about this, right? How do you have that conversation with those modern beer drinkers that have been raised on the hazy yeah. style that they hear the word bitter and they get maybe a little spooked? I'm a, I'm a firm believer that and not just us it could be any producer that you don't have to be all things to everyone and like Pliny is bitter we've never shied away from it it's always been that way it's always had a really firm crisp bitterness it's always quite dry as well and and so like if you don't like it that's fine like I have no problem with it and and I you know that's what makes craft beer so cool is that there is like something for everybody now especially now like if you want banana in your beer there's someone out there that puts banana coconut all that weird stuff. Um, it's not what we do. As Natalie says, we make beer-flavored beer for the most part, you know? A couple fruit beers, but I, I, but I, I do. I just take it back to as simple as, like, 
if you don't like it, that's fine. There are plenty of other beers out there, you know, and, and that's, that's okay. Um, it does make me cringe when I hear uh, brewers talking about, like, finishing gravities of, like, four and four and a half Play-Doh. Pliny finishes at about two and a half Play-Doh. So for those of you that don't know, that is just a uh, measurement of sweetness, of sugar, residual sh- of, of sugar content in the beer. And... Um, and there's this great term, this great idea in Belgium, and, and it says that your beer is digestible. And what it means is that you can drink a lot of, of beer and basically wake up the next day without a hangover and go to work. And, um, and so I've always, you know, subscribed to that mindset of, of, of a drinkable beer that's digestible. That you, and even at 8% alcohol... Um, it's like Duval, Belgian beer. It's super dry. It's eight and a half percent alcohol, but you drink a few of those, you can still wake up the next day and feel pretty good as long as you drink a little bit of water. Just um, a little bit, yeah. But and, and on Pliny's eight percent, and not that we're saying this is eight percent. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's the art of where I live. The I art of hiding the alcohol. Yeah. And you know, Pliny the Younger is ten and a quarter percent. And a part of that uh, balance is finding hops that are really fruity. And so some of this really comes down to hop selection and finding the exact same lot of hops. You know, a lot of, a lot of brewers uh, have the uh, opportunity and privilege to go to the Pacific Northwest and do hop selection every year and select your lot of hops. And some brewers want, they want something new every year. They want it to be totally blind and I'm just the opposite. I want the same farms. It may be a different lot, but I want the same farm every year if I can. And so we uh, buy our Simcoe from three different suppliers. Two of those are direct contracts. So I know that one of them is Peralt, yeah. one of them is Carpenter, and the rest of it comes from Yakima Chief. But yeah. I, I specifically love that I know that I'm gonna get Carpenter and Peralt and even their worst is better than 99% of the Simcoe out there. Yeah. And, and we're, you, you, know, you talked about you're privileged with yeah. your job. We're privileged that we have that opportunity to go do hop selection at these farms direct. We're the only brewery that's allowed to do Simcoe selection direct at these farms. Really? And, and they select the best of their best lots. And That's a bragging right for them as well, though. And, that, and we love it. Yeah. And we have these relationships. And like we ran into Brad Carpenter in the airport yesterday coming in. He was coming in from Seattle. And it was like, these are, these are like our family. And, and it helps us. And it's really odd because sometimes they'll put the same lot or the same field in from year to year. And then we, we select blind. And we'll, we'll select the same field multiple years in a row. Steve Peralt's always like, yeah, that field 13 or whatever it is. He's like, you pick that every year. Like, that's crazy how you do that. So, so that, that to me drives consistency in, in our beers, knowing that we can get a lot of times the same field or at minimum the same farm, knowing that their farm practices are the same. Because consistency is... That's, I think, with West Coast IPAs at least, uh, and beers like this, the consistency has to be there. I think I feel like with hazies, there's still a lot of you know people who are either messing around with it or um, it doesn't have to be perfect or it doesn't have to be because you're able to hide some flaws and you're able to, to you know, it, it's just not, the quality isn't always there uh, that I would like to see. But 
it's so critically important for beers like this. And I think one of the reasons that you all have been successful is that consistency to it and that commitment to yeah. it. Yeah, the you know, it's we we spend so much time on this beer. We stress about it. Um, we worry about the freshness, the stability of it. We worry about you know how to keep it relevant, and um, we're you know we we're so committed to the uh, making it the betterment of it. We do make tweaks on this recipe all the time. You'd be shocked at how often we make minor tweaks, but there's always a through line of two hop varieties, Simcoe and Amarillo. Yeah. Um, and we're building other hops around it to try to just keep making it a, a better beer. Um, and and I can't see any more of that question other than we just, Natalie and I lose sleep over it. Yeah. You know, that's what that's what Mind Circus references is when you lay at bed at four in the morning and your little hamster wheel is running in your head and you're like, whatever your worry is, whether it's kids or work or school or and and that that's literally where the term mind circus came from from our, our friend dave uh who owns the tornado beer bar in san francisco and uh but we mind circus over pliny so much to try to keep it relevant and because we know we have something special with it and um yeah and we and we know that it can turn on a dime and that we could lose that credibility that we've worked really hard to establish but that that kind of goes back to your first question about freshness yeah is that you know our our uh, our sales team our brand ambassadors have been known to walk into an account and see even like 10 week old 12 week old pliny and just lay down their their russian river credit card and buy everything off the shelf and take it out of there because it's not fresh enough yeah so but we've always believed in in the bottling date and not a best buy date. We're early adopter of that and let the consumer decide. And I think every brewery, you know, that's another thing about IPA that I didn't mention. If you're buying IPA yeah. that doesn't have a bottled on date, you shouldn't buy it. Like yeah. every, every IPA and, and honestly, and everyone in the industry knows that I'm not the biggest fan of cans. We do canned beer. But I wasn't going to ask you the question. Cans of cans of everybody have a, wants to know. I know that Pliny has been double canned. dry, double dry hop, and Pliny for president has been in cans, and we're going to do Pliny for president again. We've never canned regular Pliny before. I that, I I know that to be not true. We canned one, one crowler, one crowler on the, on the Sierra Nevada, on the Sierra Nevada, Nevada beer yeah. camp bus. You are absolutely that's right. A benefit. Yeah, that's of, yeah, true. It's happened once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but cans have honestly given the brewer a little bit of an out because 99% of the cans, the canning dates on the bottom and most consumers don't grab the can and look at the bottom of the can. Whereas like most breweries that bottle, not that there's many of them anymore, they, it's on the label like ours is. Um, and so I think cans have given the, con the breweries a little bit of an out. Not only consumers look as much. Yeah. I always do. No, I do too. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm critical. And, and a lot of times you flip the can over and the canning date is smudged. Oh, yeah. Um, which is like, well, that's just as good as not having a canning date on it. So. Um, I wish we could keep going with this. Oh. Uh, Garrett Oliver's up next uh, in, in in just a minute. You but, don't want to um, you don't hold Garrett up. No, 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 no. Can it's, I it's can I tell a quick clear. Garrett Oliver story? Oh yeah, please. Those are yeah. left. So last Garrett and Natalie and I are very close friends. Garrett's one of our best friends in the industry, and uh, we we communicate a lot. He's just a dear dear friend in person, and uh, and I highly suggest 
that um, you go use the bathroom, grab a beer, whatever, come back. But we, for years, have talked about wanting to go to Belgium together. So we do this collaboration every five years with Cantillon and Allagash, where we blend our spontaneous beers. So we event got delayed because of COVID. So last year, the event was finally going to happen. And Garrett and Natalie and I were going to do our Belgium trip in 2020 or 2021. And I guess 2020, and then it got postponed to 2022. So we go and do our Belgium trip. And two days before the end of the trip, and we're actually out in Florenville visiting Orval. And, um, and, and we had dinner the, that, that night with Jean-Marie Rock, the former head of production at Orval, who's an old friend of ours. And I start feeling this scratch in the throat that night. And I wake up the next day and take the test. And lo and behold, I get the Belgian version of COVID. So, which actually moves through you faster because it ferments harder, warmer. It's got higher ester content, more, more phenolics to it. Within three days, I was back drinking Taurus Bulba. And then Natalie was a couple days behind me. But anyways, so we had to cut our trip short. But... So Garrett had just had COVID, so he was bulletproof. So for the first couple days, Garrett took care of us. So if you know anything about Garrett, he eats well, he drinks well, dresses well. If anyone's going to take care of you when you have COVID, it's Garrett fucking Oliver. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. Thanks, everybody. uh... My thanks again to Linus and Brandon. Questions, comments, concerns, you can email me. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at allaboutbeer.com. Or you can tell me about it on Twitter at John underscore Hall. A reminder, go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can check out the podcast page, the merch page, and can read great new content as well as the archives going back to 1979. You can follow All About Beer on social media at All About Beer. And if you're interested in supporting journalism in the beer space, and really I hope you are, Email us at info at allaboutbeer.com or go to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. Don't forget, All About Beer has a podcast channel now. Search and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. For you smoked beer fans out there, check out This Week in Rauk Beer. The Facebook group is easy to search. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at TWRaukBeer. As for this show, Mitch Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>